you're listening to Girovagando, the cycling podcast at the 2023 Giro d'Italia. Today, it's the Conferenza Stampa, the press conference. Buonasera, Brian. We're in your neck of the woods. We're in your, your, on your patch in the piazza. What is this piazza called? The Piazza Centrale in Piazza Duomo. Piazza Duomo in Pietra Santa Lionel. If you're listening, very much, this, very much like the central piazza in Not Watford. Um, very reminiscent of that similar architecture, um, similar vibe, Lionel. Um, yeah, you'd be very much at home as well, Brian. We had a bit of alone time. We had a bit of time apart today. We took a bit of a break in our relationship. Um, sort of did our own thing. You were catching up with your family. Um, we didn't have lunch together in case you yes, forgot. Yes, we did. Much needed family time. But otherwise, how has your rest day been? Uh, can I just say that it's been a little bit stressful? How's it? You look slightly stressed. Well, I came home to, um, to the news that my wine fridge has broken. <laughs> and summer is coming, Daniel, and I need, to, I need to get on that. I need to get on the case of finding some way to store and keep my precious bottles cool but other than that it's been wonderful i got to pick up my daughters from kindergarten they go they attend the nuns kindergarten here the scuola materna with uh, where the nuns are taking care of them so that was really a bliss and uh but i'm i was looking forward to being here in the piazza with you i'm quite excited to show you this part of my world well as much as i think our listeners will sympathize about your wine fridge thank you um i don't think we'll, hashtag. i don't think we'll be setting up a gofundme for <laughs> brian's wine fridge um very much first world problems i think um brian it's the press conference so cycling podcast tradition i used to do a lot of press conferences in my yeah, time yeah you did as a former press officer of course um this was your meet and drink on rest days we have our own press conference we've had questions um, lots of interesting questions from listeners. I should also say, just on Pietra Santa and what we've done today, Brian, I've been off rob- trying to rob KOMs on your patch on Strava. I ran up your local climb in Caprilia. Um, how, how, did, did you um, manage? I got top 10 overall, top 10 of all time. Um, I took a minute off the best time for this year. So I was, wow. quite, I was quite pleased with that. That's really um, good. Brian, is that a, is that a well-known climb? Because I ran up the asphalt road, of course. It's about five kilometers, isn't it? Five kilometers, it goes up 360-odd meters. Yeah, I think the cap- there's two sides to it. There's the Caprilia side, which I think is just... Which is the, the one I did, yeah. On the asphalt, it's, I think it's just short of seven. I have a pretty decent driver time on that one, on the bike, however. And then on the other side, it's Capitano Monte. And the interesting thing is the Capitano Monte side, which is the shorter, steeper version, featured in the Giro in, the, I believe, the mid-'80s. Uh, and it, wasn't, it was back in the days when the maps weren't that accurate, but one of the, the sports directors were, was able to scout it and realize, hey, this is a lot harder. I mean, the, the other side, the Capitano Monte, is, is quite steep. It has, like, ramps with eight, nine... 10% at places and uh, the finish was out very close to where the finish is on the stage tomorrow and I think it was Lucien van Impe I'm not sure but one of the, the climbers got away and left the rest of the peloton behind him miss those days when you know there would be one rider or one team in the peloton with some intel um, with those some, days are gone. some sort of spy or local scout who had given them vital in- intel which led to them then you know getting a, an advantage over their competitors unfortunately no longer happens Brian um, last night we had a very long drive from the uh, not Tirreno Adriatico we Adriatico Tirreno we were driving from Cesena 
to Pietrasanta and as we were, I suppose, around about Florence, we got the news, or a bit past Florence actually, we got the news that Remco Evenepoel was out of the Giro d'Italia. We were actually just uh, minutes after passing a good friend of the podcast, Max Chandri's hometown in Quarata. Shortly after that, the, the news came in. Indeed, and shocking news it was. We didn't update the podcast. We thought we'd address it today. Um, obviously, the big news on Giro all day. Um, and, of course, we've got a lot of questions. We've had a lot of questions about this particular issue. Um, we'll start off with one. Hello, this is from Andrew Morris. Hello, Cycling Podcast. I may be too late to this, but I would Remco Evenepoel leave the Giro before the rest date rather than seeing how he is on the morning of the next day's stage of racing, giving him a day and a half to recover especially given that the first two days after rest day aren't high mountain stages. Is it a team policy? Brian? I think there's several aspects to this. Uh, first of all, I think they've done a good job at explaining why they made the decision. And I think we're past the, the team policies with how they're handling these things. But I think, it's a, I think it was a good decision when you look at the potential damage it could do to his his physique his just general overall health we, we're all I think at the point where and I'm not trying to be an amateur epidemiologist here but we're all at a point where COVID is almost something that we live with but apparently some research shows that if you push your body in the way that professional bike riders do while having the virus active in your body it could potentially do harm to uh, some fundamental parts of uh, your constitution including your heart so they didn't want to run that risk which I also think would be pretty crazy when you think of Remco being that young and every, all the other things that he still wants to achieve as a bike rider and um, I also think and this is my personal opinion I, I will I will I would be very surprised if they would take him out at this point in the race with leaders jersey and won a stage if it wasn't absolutely necessary I don't think any teams in their right mind would, would do that so and also kudos to them for being quite transparent about that I must admit, Brian, my initial reaction when they did pull him out was the same as um, Andrew's. Why didn't they leave it another day? I think it's pretty clear. I think we now all realise that the teams have slightly different policies. Some of the teams have slightly different policies on this and there's no overarching um, protocol dictated by... Neither by the UCI. The UCI, yeah. Um, On just quick step themselves, their main team doctor, their head doctor, Ivan Van Mol, um, he talked about this earlier in the year. Um, He talked about not knowing the consequences for riders' cardiac system and uh, he said it's our job as doctors to prevent riders with COVID from racing. We don't have enough of a long-term perspective to be sure that they won't have an... uh, that it won't have an effect on their health it's a precautions i suppose i found myself wondering if i was in remco's position and i had a team doctor. this doesn't appear to be the case here but if i had a doctor who for example had said we don't know we don't know whether there could be consequences we think it's pretty safe as long as for example we're monitoring your heart rate data and there's nothing there that will alarm us this decision is ultimately yours there might be a risk what would I have done in that situation? I think I would have pulled out. Well, we, we don't know if, if if that was actually the case and Van Mol presented that that question to him and he decided to, to make the decision to leave. But imagine, if I would say if there was even a low risk of long COVID leaving some kind of mark 
on your on your physical ability. Let's say that that would potentially involve the risk of of lowering the like if just with a few percentages your ability to perform at your highest level. Lungs, hearts, whatever it takes to you know to be a, a, an endurance endurance athlete. With what I think is possible now, I've had to adjust that happily with the future of Remco Evenepoel. I would certainly not run that risk. And if, cynically, you could even say they're just they're protecting their investment, which is a significant one for them. And I think also, when in doubt, always make the decision that benefits the the rider's health, not just now, but also after their career. Yeah, we spoke earlier today to Theo Gegenhardt. We're going to feature a long and extended interview with Theo Gegenhardt tomorrow as a special, as an extra kilometer zero. And we're going to put that on our normal cycling podcast feed. And not, it's not a friend's special. But he talked about it being an individual choice at Ineos. So he sort of suggested that um, if, if the choice was put to him anyway, he would certainly not race. He would never race if he was positive. But I'm not sure whether every rider would would answer that in the same way i suspect that some would not and you know i also found myself wondering would there be a difference between you know remco for example who i'm sure he believes and we all believe he's going to win more grand tours he's he's already won one and he's got a long career ahead of him would it Could be, potentially would it win be three the same in a row? Well, would it be the same for a 33-year-old who has spent years sort of struggling to get to the top tier of the sport and felt as though he'd worked his whole career well, um, to get the, to this level? The, the, the person that would be qualified to answer that question would be Garen Thomas. You know, if, if he was even in the position where he is now, you know, even he was close to winning yesterday. Had he won close to the jersey, uh, that would be also quite interesting. I'm not sure that. I mean, after his incredible career, I, 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 you know, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I don't think he, he has five more Grand Tours with a, with a shot at winning them. I think I'm offending anyone by saying that. So, yeah, and, and, but also there's almost even a scientific dis- discourse here that everyone's also, will potentially, literature shows, the science shows, react differently to the virus. So I think the, the, it's, it's risk and reward, really, isn't it, as they say in golf. Brian, let's have another question on Remco. Um, hello, Daniel and Brian, says Adrian in... Adrian, sorry, not Adrian. Um, Adrian in Hereford. Um, it's always sad to see any cyclist leave a race due to COVID, but especially when someone as talented and as informed as Remco has to give up the Maliarosa. What do you think he and Sudo Quickstep should do next? Carry the form and momentum into the Tour de France or wait it out for the Vuelta? I don't believe we got any kind of answer on this today. No, I think that would also be very premature. Yes. Um, I think we I, can talk about it in general terms. Yeah, I, I think most of us would imagine that he will pivot to the Tour de France. Yeah, potentially. I mean, it's it's uh, it's certainly wishful thinking on my behalf. It would, it would be amazing to see him in the Tour because that's the... The Clash of the Titans would have an, uh, the, the third man and added addition to Vingegaard and Pogacar. But I think it's also very important to underline that you don't just do the tour because you have an open slot in your calendar. You do the tour, and also with, with Remco, we, I think we're all at a point now where we, we're, pretty, we're all pretty convinced that he has a very good chance of, of winning the tour, potentially even more than once. And he would only, I think, and the team would probably think that they would only take him there if he was 100% ready with a, with a real chance of winning it. 
he's he's beyond learning experiences in Grand Tours. He's already won one. He's led another one. Uh, this one, the Giro, and I think if they if they bring him to tours because he has a real chance. And don't forget that in modern cycling, to be able to be competitive, to be able to fight for the podium or the win, the 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 preparation that goes into that, the everything that needs to be in place, has to be perfectly dialed in. It's, you don't just do it by default. Doing the tour by default doesn't make sense for a rider like him. And also when you look at the the other goals they have and the riders they prepared to be ready for the Giro, they can't just reset those guys. No. They can't like have his, have the best climbers and to be fair, they don't have that many. And just reset them and say, Oh yeah, you all have to go back now and then get ready for the tour. It it's like well, there's a lot of moving parts in that equation. Yeah, and they would also have to pivot the preparation. They've basically they've constructed two different squads. They've constructed a Giro squad, and they've invested a huge amount in altitude camps. And this, and we've seen this, we see this with all three of the teams that we think are the favourites for the general classification. In fact, four if you count Almeida in UAE. Since the start of the season, they've had a group of riders, a group within the group, within the squad, who have done training camps together, they've done races together, and this is a three, four-month process. And the same for the Tour de France, isn't it? You know, they've got... Potentially have, more so. Yeah, and they've got Jakobsen for the Tour de France, they've got Alaphilippe. So they would effectively have to completely, well, uproot whatever plans they had for the Tour de France. And what would you do with some of those riders who have spent months preparing for the Tour de France. So I think that probably the logical option is to send him to the Vuelta España again. I mean, there are some big, good stage races, prestigious stage races in the meantime. Send him to the Tour of Switzerland. World Championships. Yeah, he could win the Tour of Switzerland, for example. World Championships is just before the Vuelta España this year. So I think they could probably construct quite an, an appealing program for him. Um and I think that's probably what they'll do, especially given how sort of dogmatic and how adamant that Patrick Lefebvre has been about it being too early for him to do the Tour de France. Yeah, it's, that's the thing with, with young riders. Um, I remember that working with um, Simon and Adam Yates. They were dying to do the Tour. They were dying to finish their first Tour. And, and keeping young, extremely talented riders back is a, it's a, it's a diff- it's not the easiest thing in the world. I mean, luckily for... You know, for Remco and for riders, the young riders that are at a very high level at a young age, they have long contracts, so the teams can allow themselves to. They don't. They're not by neither by sponsors nor by outside pressure or potentially even from the riders themselves, forced to take them to the tour too early. And there's there's an, there's a danger in if in that if you do it, even with a rider like Remco, I think he's had it easy here, and thanks to his, I think, extreme capability to deal with the media. The tour is a completely different beast, completely different. If he is at the tour, he will be treated as the outright favorite, potentially uh, next to Vingegaard and Pogacar. And uh, we've, I mean, yeah, it, it's just a comp- very, very different scenario for him to deal with. And uh, yeah, I, I'm very curious to to see what they're gonna what they're gonna make of it. But also, like I said initially, good for them that they don't have to make that decision. And also, he, he needs to be well again. And I'm I'm quite certain that he's not well seeing that he had to leave. The Cycling Podcast at the 2023 Giro d'Italia is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Science in Sport has supported the Cycling Podcast for a long time now, since the 2016 Giro, in fact, and once again, they are backing us through this Giro d'Italia. Now, the range of products is very broad 
uh, different types of nutrition products for different circumstances, but also different flavours. And everyone has their particular favourites. We've been speaking to the Ineos Grenadiers riders, Pavel Sivakov and Ben Swift, and I asked them if Science in Sport could make them a custom gel, what flavour would they go for? First Pavel Sivakov and then Ben Swift. I would go for um, salted caramel, I reckon. That would be great. Whoa, kind of got me going there. I don't know. Maybe something like a chocolate brownie gel or something. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that would be a bit sickly. Nice. Uh, Pavel said uh, salted caramel, which I thought yeah. could probably work. That'd be all right, yeah. I think I, I'd go with the chocolate brownie for now. See how that would work. <laughs> Well, salted caramel, chocolate brownie, some good suggestions there. Quite sweet, I must admit. I do sometimes crave something savoury later on in a ride. Once I've worked my way through quite a lot of sweet stuff, I prefer something savoury. I've said it before, and it's not even a joke. I think a cassoulet-flavoured gel would work perfectly. But sticking with the Italian theme, what about bolognese? A really good, meaty bolognese sauce energy gel. I mean, that could work, couldn't it? Probably not. Or maybe, secretly, the science in sports scientists are working on that as we speak. Who knows? You can shop the entire range at scienceinsport.com. Hello, Daniel, Brian and Lionel. Uh, this is Jamie Roberts, friend of the podcast. Loving your coverage of the Giro as, as ever. Um, my question to you is, uh, after Geraint Thomas's disclosure that Primoz Roglic uh, told him that he had COVID and assuming that that was a joke. Um, what's the greatest example of cycling kidology that you've ever heard in a Grand Tour in particular? Looking forward to your thoughts on that and keep up the great work. Thank you. So Brian, is Primoz Roglic the greatest kidologist in the history of Grand Tour racing or was his joke, was it a joke? We still don't know if it was a joke. Um, to Gary Thomas the other day, saying that he had COVID or he'd had COVID. What's that, the greatest example of kidology we've seen in a grand tour? Uh, often with those things, it depends on what the audience thinks, you know. It's a bit like if you're a comedian, it's, it's the reaction of your audience that uh, determines whether it was a good joke or not. I'm sure he didn't have COVID, but... Um, I'm sure he didn't have COVID because if he riding for Jumbo Visma, he would have gone home. That's the team policy... I think even if you have asymptomatic COVID on, on Jumbo Visma and some of the, the other Targets the joke teams, don't care about that, do they? No, the targets are on the joke. I mean, there's a context of almost bragging, you know, when you see how how well he's been riding, how, how much better he's sort of looked coming further into the Giro. And also don't forget that he's came in here relatively under-raced. Um, so, yeah, it looks like his trajectory is, is just about perfect. I mean, I think Jamie's question, actually, I've slightly misrepresented his question. His question was, what was the best example that we can remember? I was sort of mm, casting around in my mind, in my memory for this. Um, for examples, I think Bjarne Rees, your old boss is Bjarne Rees at Hortecamp, where he sort of he dropped back through the, the line, well, through the kind of group of the best climbers on the road to Hortecamp, and initially... People thought he was struggling, and people thought he was going to get dropped. But uh, actually, on a sort of sec, on a rewatch, it was pretty clear that he was just checking out, 
um, or maybe psyching out the opposition. And then he surged to the front and completely obliterated everyone. And with everything that came later, you know, revelations about his doping use, I think that took on an even, an even sort of broader mythology and it was it was seen as even more brazen there's also um, a technical bluff to it because quite famously he was on the big chain ring but he was on a i believe a, a, a pmp prototype of a, of a 50 front chain ring which is what back in the days they would always be it was be 53 55 on a on a time trial back then but he was on the 50 it's quite rare but uh, very standardized now and and uh, there is that as well I think his, his uh, gear looked heavier than it actually was because of that 50. So that's the technical element of it too. And then there was the famous Lance Armstrong bluff in 2001 where on the Glandon, on the, well particularly on the Glandon, the Seiso Abduez, he dropped back um, in the bunch, was grimacing at the camera and Jan Ulrich and Telecom went to the front and they were convinced or, that he was really struggling. And then there was this, I actually talk a lot about this in my book on Jan Ulrich, there was this bluff, counter bluff, taking place over the radios the race radios the two teams were listening to each other um US Postal were aware that Telecom were listening to them so they played on that we have a, um, a funny anecdote about that go on one uh, one morning at the tour uh, just before the race was about to start it's quite normal that you do a radio check you you see if the riders you know if the, if the radios work and it's, it's quite a an integrated part of, of professional cycling now and I remember that uh, uh, we were sitting, uh, lining up the car next to Johan Brunil's car, uh, and uh, Bjorn Ries was doing a radio check, and he asked all the riders whether they could hear him or not. And then at the end, he asked Johan Brunil <laughs> if he could hear him or not. And he was looking out the window, and Brunil turned around and faced him, and it was a very awkward moment, especially for Brunil. He had a scanner on the car, so he could uh, he could basically uh, he could get all the signals from the various teams' radio. Yeah, it was pretty rife at that point. I also heard a funny story. I don't know if this is true. This is one of these apocryphal stories that, um, unfortunately, is probably only about 20% true. That, um, Good enough. Yeah, that in the 2002 Tour de France, I believe, apparently Manolo Saez and Once, so he was the director of Once, he hated the stage in Paris um, in the Tour de France. It was just a pain for him and for the Once riders, and they couldn't wait to get out of Paris. And traditionally, they would spend most of the last stage just discussing taxi arrangements um, so they could get out of Paris as quickly as possible after the final stage. During the race? During the race, during the race. And um, I sympathize with that. Uh, apparently, at one point, um, they so Raimondas Rumsas, who was, was going to finish on the podium, he found himself in a break off the front, and this was threatening Jose Babaloki's position on general classification. And I heard that George Hincapie at one point went up to one of the onset riders, I think it was Jörg Yaksha, and said to him, oh, by the way, Rumsas is off the front, and if you get a taxi from from the Place de la Concorde at 5.30, you'll never make it to, you better hurry to, up. Yeah. to um, Charles de Gaulle Airport for that seven o'clock flight, something along those lines, but a uh, great well, story. That, that's very motivational of him. Yes, yes. Um, but, you know, Armstrong, I, he, I always imagined that he would be a great trash talker. And I asked him this, I asked him whether he ever trash talked Ulrich. Ulrich, of course, his great rival. And he said, oh, I would never have trash talked again. I had too much respect for that guy. I don't believe that. But I don't believe that. I don't believe that necessarily. I, you know, I believe he, he had a lot of respect for Armstrong, but I believe that there was probably also a bit of trash talking every now and again. Oh, Brian, the rest day seems like a good opportunity to remind everyone of our 
selezione selezione girovagando case of six ones that represent the terroir and the character and the spirit of this Giro d'Italia um, in conjunction with Divine Sellers you want to find more find out more about that go to Divine that's the letter D Vine Sellers dot com you can buy the case there and Brian I'm sure we'll be drinking some lovely wine later Chez Trois at your house very, very much looking to Looking forward to seeing the Nygaard layer. In you Russia. have a lot to look forward to, not with the layer, but certainly with the, with the wine I'm going to open for you tonight. Then you, you deserve only the best. Brian, talking of local flavor, we've had a question from Mark. I don't think Mark gave his surname. You always try to give a local flavor to the area you're in. Have you noticed over the years that this is getting more or less difficult? Or is it constant? I ask as I fear mass communication and demographics ultimately are leading to rural depopulation, Anna homogenization of the regional differences, motorways and shopping malls placing culinary and linguistic idiosyncrasies. Wow. That's a complex question. Yeah, it's, but it's, uh, it's, a, it's a relevant one to ask and also I think there's, a, there's an aspect to the, the answer that, uh, that highlights the, one of the reasons why I, certainly I love the, the Giro d'Italia is that Italy I mean it's also the European country I know the best next to my home country in Denmark but it's so diverse and there's nothing homogenous about the contrast between north and south the how different it feels culturally linguistically social economically uh, how how different the atmosphere is just to just to say it in, a, in, a, in an easy way so i think the one of the beauties of the beautiful things about professional cycling it takes us a lot of very different places places that i don't as i certainly wouldn't have seen if it wasn't for cycling and and i i I'm sure that that's not the case other in other places of even of, of other places in Europe in, including Denmark where, that I know just as well but I don't know I mean you've you've come you just you came to Italy earlier than I did and you've traveled it more extensively than I have I, I does do you, don't you think that still is the case with Italy that is very unhomogeneous yeah I do, I do, Brian, but I also think it's changing very fast. Um, and I think things like, you know, means of communication, improvement in means of communication or acceleration um, in certain types of communication, things like social media, they're catalysts, they're accelerators of change in a lot of ways. And, um, and you can basically visit a place without going there now, can't you? Yes, yes. And I think there are certain sort of cultural conflicts in Italy that are possibly coming to a head and you know that creates that creates difficulties in the short term but it creates the opportunity for change in the long term challenges like immigration we were talking about this a couple of um, days ago you know it's it's so the difference between north and south here is so very stark economically and um, the, the South, there's no doubt the South needs serious investment for a, a rebalancing to take place. And the South now is also finding itself, well, it, it, it's, it seems to me that it is dealing with a lot of the challenges of immigration. And, and that is going to cause, that's going to cause further rifts. It's going to cause a, an entrenchment of cer certain political positions, particularly in the North, entrenchment of certain sort of prejudices as well and I think Italy has got some very challenging times coming particularly when you think about who's in government at the moment it's a right it's a quite a, a, I'm not gonna say it's only a far-right party but a very 
Mm, well, it's solidly, it's, it, by no means is it centre-right government. So, you know, the next three or four years are going to be interesting. But this is a country that's always been in flux, as we heard at the start of the... Fairly young country, too. Yeah, and as we heard at the start of the, or in our preview podcast from John Foote, this is a, it's also a country that always seems to be in crisis. Um, political crisis in particular so that's that is a force that definitely works all those forces work against homogenization and sort of calcification certainly of this country as far as the stories go the stories that we tell every year it can be quite difficult but i think every year we try to add a little mm, bit of detail and a little bit of complexity you know maybe when we started our Giro d'Italia coverage we were um, telling what might seem now to be quite obvious stories for example the difference between north and south this was the sort of first this was Italy for beginners the Giro for beginners the first layer of understanding of Italy and now we've got to a point where for example the first podcast that we did this year um, in the kilometer zero series was about debunking a lot of what we've been saying True. for the last five or six years so you burned the postcards yeah so and you know maybe maybe next year we'll be debunking the debunking um so there are always new things to discover and um as long as there are we'll carry on doing what we've been doing the last few years brian next question is an audio question dominic stobart from pelham new york Given that Remco Evnepol is no longer in the race, which of the two Ineos riders, Geraint Thomas or Theo Gegenhardt, do you think stands the best chance of winning the race? Dominic Stobart, thanks for that question. It's a question that a lot of people will be wrestling with today. Um, out of Theo Gegenhardt and Geraint Thomas, who stands the best chance of winning the Giro d'Italia? Brian, who do you think? Well, if if you look at the the, the, the the individual careers, they both won a Grand Tour. The more experienced one is ov- obviously Garen Thomas. But the interesting thing about one of the many interesting things about the, what we have left of the Giro is it's ridiculously hard the last week. The second last stage, I think, is probably the hardest Grand Tour stage this year. If you look at length and climbs and accumulated fatigue and all that. So I'm I'm quite excited about not being able to answer quite specifically um, to th- to that actually really good question. And I think for the team Ineos' tactics, they shouldn't give too much away about it either because they can only really put pressure on the other candidates for the win. I'll be very surprised first of all if they didn't get anyone on the podium or didn't get a, a second place in this Giro. But if they gave too much away of how they want to play those cards, they wouldn't be making a tactical error. And also. They don't know. They don't know how they react to how, you know, those hard stages. It finishes with a mountain time trial of 50-50 flat and climbing. So there's, yeah, to be honest right now, I, w- I would probably say Tao Ginghardt if I look at his trajectory. But he will need Garen Thomas to do that. One of them will have to, at some point, sacrifice themselves. And it could be a tactical maneuver. They could send someone up the road and Roglic will have to make up his mind who he wants to go after. So maybe maybe it's their time to to juggle around a little bit with uh, Roglic's perception of what's real and what's not. Yeah, when we think of that last time trial in particular, Monte Lusari, I mean, a lot, an awful lot is going to happen 
between now and then and what I'm about to say is probably going to be academic and irrelevant by the time we get to that time trial however I see that as suiting Theo Gegenhart better than it will suit um, Geraint Thomas over the past few years usually we've seen climbers triumph and thrive in the Giro d'Italia pure climbers I mean this is the this is the Grand Tour with the most metres of climbing, um, also the longest stages, and we think of this as the ultimate proving ground for the pure climber, and Theo Gegenhardt, we think of him as, as more of a pure climber than Geraint Thomas. However, sometimes these labels are, they're sort of labels of convenience, really, and sometimes they have to do more to do with the aesthetics of a rider, or, or almost by exclusion, he's not such a good time trialist, therefore we think of him as more of a pure climber, when actually, you know, Geraint Thomas has climbed with the best guys in the world consistently on many occasions. So they're very evenly matched. Um, they have a common enemy, which I think makes discussions about who is the real leader, whether there's tension between them, whether there will be tension. It makes that also academic for the moment, which is not to say that there will be speculation over that in the next few days, particularly in the Italian press. We talked. Oh, they'll, they'll need a. They'll need something they'll to put need in some the, polemica. Yeah. So it's going to be it's going to be really fascinating, I think. And and behind them, they have got the strongest team in the race. Last question, Brian, before we retire to your wine cellar, possibly permanently. Um, <laughs> it comes from Edmund Gralton. Um, eight stages, eight different teams have won a stage. Is there more balance between teams than we think? I think there is now. I think that when you take Remco Evenepoel out of the equation for the remains of the Giro, the dynamics of the race will change uh, for several reasons. One, everyone on any team right now are dreading most of them at least dreading the last week it's so hard you have to you have to keep something especially if you're a GC guy you have to keep something to be competitive you have to be very careful of how you use your your domestiques you have to organize basically how you want to try and, and win the race or finish on the podium and breakaways will have to go and I think a lot of them will go and even riskier ones where they will have to let someone in potentially even all the way through the top five I'm not saying that Sean Mader will have to, will get a chance to go. He won't. But other riders, where who are maybe like say like 10, 15 minutes down on the, on the GC, they'll have to consider very wisely who they who they waste energy on, on on pulling back. And there are a lot of still sort of intermediate stages where it wouldn't make any sense for, let's say that you know now that Garen Thomas is in the jersey, it wouldn't make sense for them to try and control that just for the sake of it. So I think the it opens the door for other teams now to to go and chase stages in a different way. If Edmund has asked this question because there has been a lot of talk over the last few years of you know a few teams taking most of the pie, then I would say no. This is an illusion of equilibrium because the four biggest teams in the world, the four teams that have dominated over the last few years: UAE, Ineos, Yumbo, and who's the other one? Um, oh, well, yeah, Quick Step Sudal. Yeah, yeah, that's sure. another one. Um, they have come to this race with one goal only, and they have been very sort of centrally focused, focused on that single goal um, to the exclusion of all others. So they haven't targeted stage wins and that is why they have not won any stages. So th th this is not symptomatic of a rebalancing of, of mm, results of success. Um, those teams 
are, are still the dominant teams. And effectively, the other teams have won the equivalent of, of intermediate sprints in this Volta Espana. I'm sorry, in, in this Giro d'Italia. Stage wins are effectively the, the inter, intermediate sprints of the whole sort of narrative, as prestigious as they are. That would be my answer. Brian, I think it's about time um, for us to head to Shay Nygaard. Um, I think your lovely wife is cooking for us. And um, she ser- she the antipasta is. will be served any moment. So exactly. we'll be back tomorrow with our usual episode from stage 10, the stage Brian is. Just tell us where it starts and finishes. So it starts uh, on the other side of the Apennines. They'll be crossing those uh, to get to get back here, well, to get where we are. And it starts in Scandiano and it finishes in Via Reggio, just down the road from here. So we'll be back with everything on that stage. And in the morning, look out for our kilometer zero, our extra kilometer zero this week. And I think it's going to be called Teo in the hunt. Until tomorrow. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb and Lionel Burnett.